Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hello, and welcome to the Collider Podcast. I'm Collider Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Managing Editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. And we're joined today by Associate Editor Greg Smith. Hey, howdy, folks, for me, too. Yes, we're joined today by Greg, who recently published uh, an article on the site about the essential films of Billy Wilder. So we wanted to kick off the episodes talking about that and and a little bit about Billy Wilder's filmography and and what makes him such a great director. And then we will move on to our main topic, which is talking about being John Malkovich. Uh, The film is currently streaming on Netflix. Uh, Our readers voted that that's what they wanted us to talk about. So that's what we'll dive into, uh, which is pretty good timing because the next Charlie Kaufman film I'm thinking of ending things is is coming next month. So uh, all good cheerful time for a Charlie Kaufman. I know I can't really think of a better time of feeling out of place in the world and (laughs) just being a bundle of neuroses. (laughs) But uh, before we get to all that. uh, So, Greg, what made you want to pursue this Billy Wilder list? Sure, I. I'm so in love with uh, uh, directors and auteurs who don't necessarily have as distinct a genre or visual style as kind of your Wes Andersons or your Tarantinos or whatever. And I think Billy Wilder is sort of a very good prototypical director in that way. He really hops around genres and he's really interested in different kind of explorations of different kinds of people. And there are character and thematic similarities with all of them. Maybe like empathy, no matter the cost, is one of them. But it's just such an interesting CV because it is inherently a little bit different. And it really makes you focus on each story's quality in of itself. And I think the fact that he's able to do all this and just like produce, I don't know, three to five of the best movies ever made within like a... 10 year period it's just wild i just there's no other director really like him yeah it's he's hard to pin down too like you said he kind of jumps between genres like you could be like oh he's the noir guy because he did like double indemnity and and sunset boulevard but then you sort of you back you take a step back and you're like no he also did like sabrina and the apartment which are sort of these more character-driven dramas not that noir isn't a character-driven drama but there's no like murder intrigue yeah, and then he also does, like, Sabrina and The Seven-Year Itch and all of these sparkly, like, Technicolor champagne comedies and romances. Mm-hmm. He just kind of was interested in stories. And it all, I don't know, his purview or his point of view is just about, like, humanity in kind of a broad way. But his films still all feel so specific. It's, it's, he's such an enigma, and I, I love exploring his work. So Did what you go me- back and revisit oh, a bunch of them uh, for the list? And I was curious, like, what, I mean, he's, like, The Apartment is one of my favorite films of all time. But I'm me curious too. what, like, in 2020, what it feel like going back and revisiting the films of Billy Wilder, if you did. How'd they hold up? Uh, I think, especially The Apartment, they tend to hold up very well. The Apartment feels like a very... It feels very modern, both in the kind of character flaws and arcs that both Lemon and McLean go through, and in kind of the 
the very like sad, melancholic, but still funny kind of like it, it sort of reminds me of the prestige dramedies we get on like an HBO or something like that. I feel like these days Billy Wilder would be like a, a TV auteur making kind of like half hour dramedies starring Anna Kendrick or whatever. Um, <laughs> so, so they really. So, so basically you're saying Paul Feig and Jason Kadams are essentially Billy Wilder. Ooh, putting words in my <laughs> mouth. <laughs> I they they just they really strike me not just with the apartment but even with the kind of like the genre stuff of a double indemnity or a uh, a sunset boulevard they still feel really like shockingly modern and how deep they're willing to go sunset boulevard is a very like cynical dark venomous at times movie and even though it has to do with the past, not just with Hollywood, but with like age and mortality in general, it feels like he's doing stuff that directors today wouldn't want to get away with. Even <laughs> there is sort of a, a great timeless quality to his his films because he sort of recognizes, I think, f- f- the sort of persistent darkness. Like when you come to the apartment, you're like. Yeah, cor- corporate America is always going to be sort of, you know, vampiric and callous and sort of take advantage of people who just want to climb the ladder. Or, you know, I mean, certainly in, in Sunset Boulevard, the the notion of tossing aside actresses once they are no longer young. I mean, that, that, that this hasn't nothing has changed with regards to these sort of basic premises so the films no longer feel like oh i guess that's just what life was like back then (laughs) yeah if anything we've only sort of become more clear and more calcified with these sort of ideas of capitalism being a soul-sucking vampire I'm, i'm struck by that shot in the apartment where it's like what looks like hundreds of people in that office just typing away all kind of at the same typewriter wearing the same outfit and just how kind of dehumanizing that is and i think if there is sort of a thread through his work it's like the struggle and the the valiant tragedy at like being a human no matter what jack lemon wants to be a human so badly and he wants to be seen and loved and heard shirley mcclain also wants to be seen and loved and heard and they're kind of drawing it back to kaufman they're sort of neuroses are nice foils to each other. They kind of answer each other in a way that no one else in his world has yet. And I think there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on in his work. So if, if so, I know, I mean, this, this list is like 10 films of, of like Billy Wilder's best. If there was, if it was just like one movie that you said, like someone who's never seen a Billy Wilder film before, what do you think, where do you think they should start? Just one. Oh, I know it's tough. That's tough. But just one sort of if if you're gonna die, you know, dip your toe in and be like, oh, okay, this makes me want to see other Billy Wilder films. I'll start with my first entry point, the first movie I watched, one of my mom's favorites, which is how I watched it originally, Some Like It Hot. Okay. I think that movie is a nice accessible point because it's very funny. The dialogue is like very witty and back and forth and sparkling. There's a lot of movie stars in it. There's Marilyn Monroe. But it's kickstarted by like really gnarly crime stuff. And there's a very kind of like provocative sort of play with like gender and sexuality at its core down to the very last line of the movie. 
I think it's a very fun, accessible, entertaining picture, but also kind of speaks to the 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 complications that Billy Wilder are interested in, in a way that I think would start to scratch an itch and make a viewer want to keep diving. I hadn't seen Sun Like It Hot until a few years ago, but I had seen previously like Sunset Boulevard and Double Indemnity. And so I was very struck by the beginning. I was like, oh, there's like murder in this movie and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's the, you know, the the movie with the funny stuff and Jack Lemmon being silly. No, not, not, that's not how it starts. But it, it sets the stakes in a really interesting way. It definitely does. And I, I love any film comedy that has kind of higher feeling stakes to it. It really makes you kind of root for these people and it makes you even though they resort to sort of a farcical kind of plot or plan that kind of kickstarts into a screwball comedy mode there's still this very real threat at the core of it that i really appreciate i did have a question i have never seen billy wilder sabrina but i have seen the harrison ford greg kinnear sabrina like many many times i don't know why (laughs) How, how do they compare I've not seen the Ford Kinnear oh, uh, Sabrina. It's but like I would the epitome of like 90s bloated rom-com drum, just overlong and overwrought. <laughs> but I would, kind of charming. I would imagine that Harrison Ford plays the Bogart role. Yeah, I think so, yeah. That, that tracks. I could see that. Part of what I find, there's a lot of kind of outside of the film behind-the-scenes drama with a lot of Wilder's best movies. Like on Some Like It Hot, he and Marilyn Monroe had a bunch of kind of budding head issues. And on Sabrina, Humphrey Bogart kind of hated making that film, and he hated his life, and he felt like he was miscast. And I sort of feel like it adds some extra-textual, subtextual kind of intrigue to it. And with that movie specifically, it's interesting to see Bogart Normally, this guy who we view as being like the pantheon of Hollywood cool, kind of sticking out in an endearing way and kind of having that be a an inadvertent, maybe, but a charm of the film. And I would imagine that Harrison Ford probably knew a little more what he was getting into when he signed on for it. So maybe you don't get that sort of extra level, but I'd have to see it. He gets to be extra grumpy. You know. Well, I do like this. What thing. does extra grumpy look like for Harrison Ford? <laughs> At that point, isn't he just like Oscar the Grouch? <laughs> <laughs> Have you never seen the Sabrina remake, Matt? I haven't seen either Sabrina's. Ah, interesting. So I'm, yeah, I'm he's out. like uh, he's like a frustrated grump, and he's trying to keep everything together. And Greg Kinnear's, you know, his little hotshot little brother, who's you know always gallivanting about. I don't, I was obsessed with Harrison Ford as a kid, so I just saw every Harrison Ford movie. I was like nine, and I was like, I want to see Witness. And so I like <laughs> rented Witness at Blockbuster. <laughs> so, and you're you are coming in from an Amish community, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. for sure. Yeah, so I, I brought that perspective to the story. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh, this is just a very long rumspringa for Adam, <laughs> <laughs> and I know what that is because I'm Amish. There yes. you go. I would say, like, we were offending our Amish listeners, but, you know. Uh, yeah. All right. With that, uh, let's <laughs> let's turn the attention uh, uh the show now to being John Malkovich, which I have not I hadn't I hadn't watched it since like 2013. Yeah. Um, it's it's a good film, but, you know, it's it's fascinating sort of viewing it in the context of like what Charlie Kaufman does. Like, I think Spike Jones is sort of a good conduit for Charlie Kaufman. 
Um, I think without, I think I, not to say that I think Charlie Kaufman has gotten stronger. I think, I think on Anomalisa is a, a, a stronger film than Synecdoche, New York. But, um, I feel, I also feel like, you know, you can sort of see the recurring Kaufman neuroses through this and adaptation and eternal sunshine. Um, just, but, but they certainly come through here and being John Malkovich, which, you know, the, what I, my big takeaway on this latest viewing is just nothing in this world fits. Nothing in this world is no one belong. Like it, it's, it's a film about the weirdness of just being alive. Just like you, you have these sort of base yearnings, but mostly existence is a matter of feeling like you don't belong. <laughs> Super chill stuff. Super chill, just fun, laid back time. I watched it with my wife who had never seen it, and her reaction was, not my cup of tea. (laughs) (laughs) It's so, like right from the get-go, it's so strange and somewhat off-putting. It's just so uncomfortable. Like you get to that, you know, uh, seven and a half floor, and everyone's just uncomfortable. And then, you know, he comes on to Catherine Keener and you're like, oh, I know how this is going to go. And she's just an absolute asshole to him, which you don't really see coming. But she also is kind of like careless throughout the movie. I, I feel like that's a really that's a really fascinating character as well. I don't know, I don't know what struck out to me because I it had been a long time since I had seen it as well um, was how clearly drawn the characters were. Um, which I'd kind of forgotten, but how compelling the characters were in and of themselves. Because I think sometimes the the John Malkovich of it all and uh, the kind of concept at the center of it kind of uh, overwhelms. Um, but it's just it's just a bunch of sad people. Well, it is a bunch of sad people, but I would also say that like the one thing that doesn't really work for me in being a John Malkovich is that I don't necessarily buy the character motivations in terms of the relationships. I feel that that's, that's a little rushed through. Um, like I can kind of buy that, like, um, Craig Schwartz is a sleaze and like, he's instantly taken with Maxine and like, she represents sort of this confidence and control that he admires. I think Maxine is kind of the, the, a puppeteer, uh, in her own way. Um, and like that kind of, you can kind of get by like why Craig feels attracted to her. I never buy into the, the Lottie, um, Maxine connection. It feels a bit forced, even though I think separately, I think Cameron Diaz and, and Catherine Keener are very strong in their roles. There, there seems to be a bit missing there. I think there, there's actually probably room for a really interesting, like trans interpretation where Lottie's character is concerned, but um, that part never quite clicks for me, even though I think again, individually, the characters are very strong uh, and sort of fit into that sort of, as you were saying out in that kind of sadness of, just no one really belongs or where they're supposed to, or where they feel like they're supposed to be. It's uh, interesting that you brought up the, the kind of trans narrative you can put onto this because the idea of transgender transitioning is brought up explicitly in yes. the film, but unfortunately, complicatedly, it's sort of treated as a joke. I, I sort of feel like, like that line where she says, you don't get in the way of my actualization as a man, while it's performed very committedly and emotionally sincerely by Cameron Diaz, who I think gives an v- incredible performance, it felt to me like Kaufman and Jones were saying, isn't this funny? Isn't this obviously a joke? Isn't there an inherent absurdity to it? 
Yeah, it felt it, it's it's one of those moments where the film is trying to have its cake and eat it too. Like it's yeah. trying to be like no one feels where they belong. And so like for Lottie, that's like I don't feel like I feel more I suddenly feel more comfortable as a man. And so rather but then rather than explore it, you're right. The film just kind of is like, you know, wants to kind of have it as a joke. And then it's never really revisited. She's yeah, never it really drops it. it kind of drops it. At the end of the film, she's she's still a woman. Um she hasn't transitioned. Um, and La- and Maxine apparently is just now attracted to Lottie for Lottie. Again, that relationship doesn't quite cohere in the way that it needs to. And when the rest of the film is so strong, especially with like its themes and what it's saying about control and, and sort of uh, your perception of the world, that the shortcomings of that relationship kind of stick out. I think for for me, that relationship works because the way I see it is... Maxine is bored, and so this is something new and fresh and interesting. Um, hence why, you know, when she finds out that it was John Cusack and Malkovich and not Cameron Diaz and Malkovich, she's like, huh, that's interesting. Like, it was kind of fine with me. Um, but I think from Lottie's perspective, like, I really love the way that Spike Jones like, uh, visualizes their like her being her world like their apartment is super dark and kind of gross and it's super loud and noisy and i think when she first meets maxine there's this kind of infatuation of like oh someone's looking at me they're like actually looking at me and they're seeing me um which makes it more complicated when it becomes this when it tries to be this kind of trans identity story of like oh you know this is what i'm supposed to be because it feels like the movie is saying she's just kind of latching on to any kind of meaningful connection she can have um, cause John Cusack's character has been just a jerk. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's sort of, it's, it's a film with a lot on its mind as something as, as a lot of Charlie Kaufman movies are. Um, but it's, it, it's a film where you almost kind of have to like ride the wave of its weirdness to sort of get to what it's about. So it's, you know, especially with through Spike Jones's direction, you know, again, the seven and a half floor where just no one fits in or even just the little things where, the receptionist who doesn't who who always you know mishears what people are saying, and then let Doctor Lester, who's like, I have a terrible speech impediment. It's like, no, you don't. But no one feels like they belong in this world, um, and so they're just everyone is sort of feeling out of place. Everything, nothing fits, and of course the 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 you know. A, the hypothesis of, of feeling out of place is when someone is literally in John Malkovich's place uh, and taking over for him to, to be someone else. I think that's sort of the, the full manifestation of the sort of the, I don't want to say conflicting ideas, but sort of the double-edged sort of, you don't belong anywhere. So if you're not going to belong anywhere, why not belong in the life of uh, a respected actor who, but even there, even in the John Malkovich of it all, it's not like he's, no one knows what John Malkovich does. <laughs> it's like, oh, you were in that Very Jewel true. Thief, you know, the Jewel Thief movie. Which, by the way, to me, I've always my my head canon is that people are thinking of Absolute Power, where Clint Eastwood plays a Jewel Thief, but because Clint Eastwood and and John Malkovich were in the in in the line of fire together, that's the confusion that they're they're making. That's how <laughs> I've always reasoned it out. I love that, and I think. It is kind of a film where everyone is so resigned to kind of these polite acquiescences that we have to make to get by in modern society, right? It's like, oh, the ceilings are too low. Um, okay, I'll just duck down and that'll, that's fine. Oh, the receptionist 
literally can't understand a word of saying, no, it's probably my fault. I, I'm probably the one with a weird impediment, even though she is clearly. And it's, it is interesting that the one way to assert control, to kind of feel like you have power over these death by a thousand paper cuts is to subjugate someone. And, and the transition from um, kind of a passive observer being enough to having to take over to like get you that thrill is an interesting one. And the thing that really struck me this watch, for me it had been a while as well, uh, the very first sequence kind of shows us this theme and kind of shows us this arc. It's the puppet show that John Cusack is putting on where it's a puppet looking in the mirror and existing as themselves, but then the puppet realizes they are a puppet and looks up and sees John Cusack controlling him and has a freakout about identity, about control, about power. And that's exactly what we see happen in the film. Yeah, I also forgot about the puppet show on the street. Where they're just oh, yeah. That was so... <laughs> A big it's shout a out to act. that character actor who played the dad. He yeah. really, when he just socks him in the face, I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> it's such a funny movie. And I'd forgotten looking at, at uh, Charlie Kaufman's resume because I was like, oh, yeah, he, he's, you know, made a few like really curated films. But like, no, he wrote a lot and he wrote a lot of movies that never got made. And he was a writer on sitcoms. He was a writer on um, what is it, the Dana Carvey show. Was that the sketch show that he was a writer on? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it shouldn't surprise me that it is as funny as it is, because I think we now kind of associate Charlie Kaufman with these kind of like really weird, esoteric, uh, kind of more dramatic things. Um, but even I like find this movie Anomalisa very... is, is fucking hilarious. At yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, but I don't know. I was kind of struck rewatching it, how funny it was. Um, but yeah, I also think it's interesting that when John Cusack's character starts to control John Malkovich, it's not to feel a sense of control. It's to get Maxine. So it's always yeah. it's it's kind of a it's transactional. It's it's a means to an end. It's uh, you know she doesn't want me for me, so I'll find a way to get her and and have her stay with me, and so then turns like, John Malkovich into a puppeteer. <laughs> so it's sort of an illusion of control. He thinks right. in that moment, I think, oh, I know what to do to get the thing I want, but he is the one. Being puppeted all along by yeah. Maxine, and then at yeah. the end he's sort of cursed. And I will say, I, I I hear where you're coming from, Matt, about the Lottie Maxine relationship maybe feeling a little for the plot's sake rather than like organically from the character. But upon this rewatch, it really was so painfully obvious to me that John Cusack was kind of the villain of this story. Oh, Red for Fr sure. Oh, and. When I when you see Maxine and Lottie at the pool with their daughter, I'm like, yeah, have the best life ever, you two. Yeah. And make <laughs> him watch. Them. And make yeah. him watch. Let it be trapped in this weird existential prison. He deserves it. He locked you in a dang cage with a monkey and threatened you with a gun. What yeah. a weirdo. <laughs> Well, and I, there's even that shot uh, in the flash forward when when you have the time jump. Um, the first uh, thing we see of Maxine is she's putting up a mobile, but it looks like she's puppeteering yep. um, over the the cradle for the baby. Yeah, I mean, that's I mean, it's, I, I think that's sort of these the, the film is kind of concerned. One of the things it's concerned with is what is control? Who has actual control? 
and what who who has the illusion of control. And so for for Craig, he has the illusion of control and or he has some control, but not as much as he thinks where he can control Malkovich, but it's Maxine who's controlling him. Um, and again, that sort of control, I think, loops back into the notion of this sort of the randomness and the weirdness of being alive. And you try to exert, you know, Greg, as you said, these sort of kind of acceptance, these weird kind of acceptances where it's like, yeah, I just guess the ceilings are too low and we all <laughs> just have to bend that way. And so like, we're being controlled by these circumstances, but like, that's just being alive, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, like there's no, there's no, at no point does anyone say this is ridiculous. Let's not do it. No, of course there's a, there's a, there's a floor in the middle of the, of the of the building that's a little too short. You have to stop the elevator to get there. You have to pry the elevator open to get there. And that's just how you get to work. Shout out to <laughs> Octavia Spencer in that role. Yes, exactly. Yes. Well, there's even uh, when Craig's boss is like detailing his like sexual history in the workplace, he's like, I don't think this is a, a comfortable place to do this. And it was like, okay, meet me after work and, and we'll do it then. And you think it's like a throwaway line, but he does. He feels yes. obligated to go and meet him and listen to his stories. There's a lot of taking what should be throwaway or what you expect to be throwaway lines or jokes. Even the first time I'd forgotten about this joke with the receptionist who mishears everything. I kind of like thought to myself, oh, that's like a fun non sequitur joke. And then it, they just kind of take it to its logical conclusion to the point where them talking about it in his interview leads organically to the next plot point, to the point where they're literally married in the flash forward at the end of the film. <laughs> Everything, even though it's a film about stuff not fitting together and trying desperately to fit together, most of the kind of quote-unquote random or non-sequitur stuff in this film does have a purpose and does fit with the next thing, even if it takes a while to kind of zoom out and see the context. Yeah. No, I mean, even, you know, something as as bizarre as, like, I have a bunch of old friends and we're going to go live in John Malkovich's head, like, it sort of it comes back to the, non, the, the thematic meat of, like, this is, like, the only way to control being alive. Like, you can't control being alive. You will die. Like, you can't be immortal. But, like, but what if we found a way to be immortal and it involves just controlling another person forever? <laughs> you know? It's just, it's such a weird, but kind of, like, again, thematically, it, it coheres in a really powerful way. But you have to go on a very strange trip to kind of get there. Yeah, and yeah. kudos for, to Spike Jones for, like, visualizing... This for making this insane. his first feature. <laughs> yes. Uh, to that end, I was very struck, and I know it was a different director, but it kind of felt like a blueprint for what we would see to a more dramatic effect in Eternal Sunshine. Mm -hmm. The third act kind of like chase sequence through Malkovich's memories. Yes. Where the camera sort of like weirdly handheldedly twists and suddenly they're in a different memory. Mm -hmm. That was such a striking confident weird sequence and when i watched it i kind of felt like the rest of the film didn't necessarily have this kind of thriller gun chasing energy to it and it sort of stuck out stuck out to me but the visualness of it all was so splendid that i like wanted to love it i don't know it was a very odd sequence for me how did it play for y'all I really like that sequence because to me, it's like it should have a different visual tenor because it's the subconscious. And so the rules are are different. And so the fact that it plays differently, 
um, really worked for me. And I also think like it kind of, I, I feel like in a weird way, it's sort of Kaufman transplanting his baggage onto Malkovich. Like, yeah, your subconscious is just a night, a bunch of nightmare fuel <laughs> and just trauma <laughs> that you've pushed down. And I'm like, I probably, I bet John Malkovich probably doesn't have this much weird stuff in his life, but kudos for him being like, yeah, just say I do. And <laughs> just, you know, I mean, the Malkovich of it all, I think we should probably talk about that is I think kind of, I think with with less vision it would have just be, be it would just be a gimmick it'd just be sort of almost like an everyman like what's it like to be you know a respected character actor but i think the the malkovich of it all is just perfectly like it's it hits just where it needs to like he's not famous enough that like it's about the movie star lifestyle but he's not unknown he's not an unknown like you know who john malkovich is kind of <laughs> i think today <laughs> like he's a little more famous than he was in 99 um, but still, I think that, you know, the, the way his performance is also a lot of fun. I'm still kind of mad over 20 years later that he wasn't nominated for best supporting actor yeah. for, you know, cause he does to do a lot of stuff. Like he has to do the, the scene where he's all the Malkoviches. He has to do the, you know, the pup, be the puppet. He has to be basically play Craig controlling him. He has this... to play a version of himself. Like it's a lot. This watch through the moment when he becomes John Cusack as John Malkovich. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they practically did it. I don't know if he like watched the dailies of Cusack's performance or if he was there watching him work. Mm-hmm. He became John Cusack as John Malkovich <laughs> yeah. in that in a way that was so it's such a like f- weirdly, even though his name is literally in the title and the film is literally about people wanting to be him more than anything in the world. It's a very egoless performance. He's very willing to give himself up to this strange, kind of metatextual, but kind of using what we know about him as a jumping off point to pure fantasy. It's 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 kind of fearless and kind of courageous. It is. I think I definitely think anytime an actor sort of takes on playing themselves and does so removed from caricature. I think there's something kind of bold there because you're putting yourself out there in a way that even if it's not who you actually are, you're playing it as if you, as if, as if this is your life. I mean, the film leads with the most mundane aspects of his life, like getting started to start the day, ordering towels, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like it, it doesn't, it's not like Malkovich, you know, hanging out with other actors, you know, it's, it's Malkovich. Um, you know, as just living his, the boring parts of his life. And yet for some people, this is exhilarating. Just the sheer act of being another person and living in their skin and not, I think to me, it's not just a matter of being John Malkovich, but not having to be yourself. A 15 minute reprieve of having to be, being of having to exist, just a, <laughs> a small break from existence. That's I, I definitely think the film is sort of like, oh, if you just didn't have like you wouldn't be dead. You just wouldn't be existing for 15 minutes. <laughs> what a relief. What a joy. I mean, about he... like four months. Can you do like four months? Can we get out of 2020? <laughs> Can I crawl in, so, you know, someone's head for four months and just not have to worry about shit? I mean, John Cusack, <laughs> he says that explicitly to. Oh, what is the monkey's name? 
uh, Elijah. Elijah. He they're sitting on the couch and he turns to Elijah and he's like, "You're lucky, man. Consciousness is a burden." Yeah, and but even then, it turns out that Elijah does have consciousness it's and true. memories, and it's like true. uses it to oh, free life. And trauma, breaking flashback. Oh, it's <laughs> brutal. And then it cuts back to him just shaking his head. Oh, it's so funny. I did want to touch on you brought up the kind of exhilaration of mundanity, mm-hmm. and it's funny to me that the only time we see. A, well, he becomes a puppeteer eventually, but the only time we really see John Malkovich as "quote unquote" an actor, he's kind of bad. He's, he's doing—it's very arch. He's doing the yes. cherry orchard, and he's like he is—he is—he is acting in a way that is sort of um, exuberant, sort of over the top, a little yes. very kind of scenery chewing. It's scenery chewing. There's absolutely no subtext, and then he stops the rehearsal. Kind of like just being like, let's take 15. My my gal is here. And he's yeah. so willing to show himself be such a like douchey, pretentious, bad actor as the real actor, quote unquote. It's yeah. it's so, so much stuff going on. It's not often that those performances work. I mean, it, it, to my mind, I think this is the end is one of the one of the other really big ones where I think actors playing themselves, they do it really well in a, in a really funny way. Um and I have to feel like they pulled from this a little bit because you're right. It's it's unique because there are so many like celebrity cameos. I mean, we just talked about Ocean's 12 last week. And even when Bruce Willis is With playing Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis, there's a little self-awareness of him playing himself there. And let's be honest, Bruce Willis is no John Malkovich. But um, Malkovich, I think here is. Yeah, it's just a really it's it's it you believe it and you kind of take for granted how good it is. But then you start thinking about like all the other times actors played it themselves. And it's like, eh, it's usually not very great. Well, it's usually just kind of one dimensional is the thing. Yeah. It's usually just sort of like, I'm a famous person, but I can have fun with myself. You know, yeah. I can have fun. I'm just like you, you know, <laughs> I know that I like, it's, it's, it's something, it's sort of the illusion of letting their guard down, but it's like, to me, it's sort of on the level of like when all the celebrities do a cameo on Jimmy Kimmel. You know, like yeah. we're all having fun. You know who we are, but we're having fun. And this is like, no, I'm going to play a real character here who ha- who shares my name and likeness and profession. <laughs> so, yeah, I um, I, I think being John Malkovich is like, especially for, you know, this kind of debut, this feature debut between Kaufman and Jones is really good. It's just really, it really coheres in a, in a really powerful way. And I'm, it is a film. I'm amazed that it, it exists in, in a way, like, because I know it was a film that had a very hard time getting made. And I'm kind of amazed that it, anyone was just like, yeah, let's go for it. Let's, let's go for whatever this is. And it works. It's also, I mean, just to talk a little bit about Spike Jones, I think, I mean, obviously he had done a lot of really stunning um, music video work, but looking at his filmography, he's only made four feature films, but they do feel, it doesn't feel like he's doing being John Malkovich again every time. And adaptation is maybe my favorite Charlie Kaufman thing, because it's just so wild. And visually, that one is really stunning, because he's having to go back and forth through um, you know, separate narratives and everything. And then they have to combine into this explosion filled finale. <laughs> um, that's crazy. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, adaptation. I mean, talk about a film about feeling imposter syndrome and just <laughs> yeah. not feeling in control at all and writer's block. And it just kind of, you know, implodes in the third act. 
I just wish I could have been the studio executive to receive that when you hire Charlie Kaufman to adapt the Orchid Thief and he turns that in. <sighs> Insane. And it also kind of feels like adaptation is a maybe purer or more crystallized or less removed take on a lot of the themes that being John Malkovich is explored or explores. Mm-hmm. I, I think, feel like, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just saying, I think adaptation is a little more synthesized, whereas I think mm-hmm. um, John Malkovich kind of wrestles with existence. Um, adaptation kind of has the comfort of just being more about creativity and yeah. sort of what does it mean to sort of tell a story and like the stories we tell ourselves. Yeah. And it's also, it's about telling stories and it's about Kaufman himself to the point mm-hmm. where the character is literally Charlie Kaufman. So it's kind of like a graduation from the idea of I'm going to use this kind of metatextual reality ish that we all sort of know. And I'm going to take that one step further and have it literally be about me in quotes this time. Mm-hmm. And I feel like every project he's made since then, Eternal Sunshine, Synecdoche, New York, has just been burrowing further and further into these kind of pure themes. And I don't always know if getting quote unquote purer yields a more successful film, but I feel like Malkovich and adaptation are kind of in the sweet spot ratio wise accessibility versus like purity. Mm. I don't, you know, I feel like though a film like, like uh, Anomalisa really kind of still harkens back to not feeling at, you know, feeling sort of disconnected from the world mm-hmm. and sort of finding a different way to sort of tell that story and using, you know, one you, you go one level down with just everything is stop motion. And then you go another level down. It's like, not only is everything stop motion, but there are only two distinct characters in this everyone else is Tom Noonan. And yes. so it's just, it's, it kind of sort of it, like to me, Anomalies is, is not so much like the pain of existence, but sort of existence has become so bland and indistinct that you pin all your hopes for any kind of excitement on another person. And just sort of that, that unfair pressure to find someone like the, the, the no, it, it almost is sort of like a cruel joke about like, I found the one and it's like, okay, well, if you found the one, what does that mean for everybody else? You know, the specialness of everybody else. <laughs> that movie is so weird too. That so weird. Is I, so weird. But I love the, sh- <laughs> I love the, the shower joke is one of my favorite <laughs> jokes. Where he's, oh, fuck. <laughs> Where you can't get the temperature right. Very relatable. Very, relatable. very relatable. How do you guess, guys feel about... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Craig. I was just going to say, this movie is kind of also about the cruel joke of love and soulmates and finding the one that will kind of let you escape from the doldrums of existence. And maybe that's the point of the kind of arbitrariness of Maxine's relationships. Mm-hmm. They, they're they sort of so willing to like play each other's affectation, or excuse me, affections as like poker moves. It's just kind of about what is the thing Maxine wants and who do I have to love, in quotes, to get me there quicker. Mm-hmm. And maybe that does yield in a slightly out-of-nowhere or cynical final image with them at the pool, even though it, like, gets me. But there is something to, like, the just the bare-ass cynicism of human connection in the world of Kaufman. Yes. 
Which is why I think I was really interested to see where the wild things are. Um, Cause I, I love, love that, that book, but, but then also to see kind of what Spike was doing with that movie. Um, but her, I think which Spike wrote and directed, I think it's one of the best films of the century. And I think it's this really deeply humanistic point of view. It's a very sad, extremely emotional story. And I just thought it was interesting to see some of those similar themes as I was thinking on her uh, while watching this without Kaufman there to kind of bring it down a little bit. Yeah, I think I think Jones makes it a little more human, and a little more softer. He has like sort of a softer voice and yeah. just he's able to sort of make it a little more relatable. Whereas like Kaufman, you're always trying to like work through his neuroses. Yeah. Like, so like, like with her, you just get a little, it's more harmonious and melodic and melancholy. Whereas there's sort of an, a, a, a screaming internally to the Charlie Kaufman. <laughs> yeah. Or it's, over. It's a, there's an edge to it. It feels like a weapon yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, it's, it's interesting. Almost, it's almost like you're sitting in on someone's therapy with Charlie Kaufman. Yeah. Yes. And also he is the therapist and also the couch. Yeah, and, <laughs> and the receptionist and the notepad. But it's interesting then that I, I love the Where the Wild Things Are adaptation. I love that movie. But that might be the harshest or darkest or like most emotionally upsetting movie Spike Jones has made. Yeah. And it's the one ostensibly for kids. And it's, yes. yeah. I don't know. Because <laughs> you got it, Jackass Presents Bad Grandpa. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Emotionally but, yeah. upsetting. Yeah. With uh, where the wild things are, I think you know Jones was kind of trying to make a film that's like I want he, he, he making a film about childhood emotions and that they're unwieldy and that they can't be sort of just neatly packaged into this sort of palatable thing to to appease parents. And so, in the weird way, where the wild things are as a movie isn't really for anyone because. <laughs> For kids, the kids aren't going to probably like it that much. And, you know, adults aren't probably going to go for it either. But I'm with you, Greg. I think it's a great film. Yeah. I only saw it the once. Uh, and, you know, I I just had the I loved the book as a kid. And I just remember being really surprised by it. I was like, this is so sad. I just kept going. But this is so sad. But why is he so sad? Yeah. And I haven't revisited it since. I probably need to again. Yeah. I mean, just the fact Warner Bros. made that, right? Yes. Uh, I think so, yeah. The yes, fact that disaster. he can... <laughs> Yeah. The fact that he got Warner Brothers pictures to give him a bunch of money to to have a scene, to have a film that has like a climactic scene where it's Gandolfini in a giant monster costume just screaming at a little child, blaming him. I'm just like, more power to you, Spike Jones. Let's do <laughs> yeah. more stuff like that. I don't know. Let's well, not weird. just that, not just after that, like not just after the War of the Wild Things are, he's like, okay, guys, I know that was weird, but okay. So for my next movie, I want to make a movie about a guy who falls in love with his computer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I just like, want to imagine the Warner Brothers executives. Uh... <laughs> and then, then it's right. like all done. And he was like, all right, we did it. He was like, okay, we need to reshoot because I'm changing the voice of the operating yeah. system. Yes, I I'm need, recasting. You have to recast that and redo all of her lines. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. I wonder if so at that funny. point they were just like, do whatever you want. Because at the same time, they were making gravity. And they were just like, I can't even with this. I can't even. Just do oh, what yeah. you want. It's, 
but it's the meticulousness in that film but it doesn't feel like a like a like a technical meticulousness it feels um kind of perfectionist i don't know like i have david fincher in my mind because uh, i'm thinking about his cameo on being john makovich i forgot That's that he played being <laughs> yeah he's good he's good he uh he could do everyone's job better than them including the actors <laughs> um but a like her feels very like very specific but not in a i don't know how to say it like not in a technical way like it feels like he spent a long time on it and really like needed to make sure everything was dialed in because he did because you there were some huge swings in that movie like the sex scene uh between the man and his and his os um but it all works tremendously well i think yeah um so yeah, I mean, being John Malkovich is is a trip, um, but I feel like it, it it made me wish like I like I know Kaufman is directing his own movies now, but I kind of wish that he and Jones would collaborate again in some way. I feel like I just wish Jones it. would make another movie. Yeah, that would also be years. nice. If well, Jones he made wouldn't... he made the uh, the Beastie Boys documentary. Yeah, if you count, if you count yeah, that. I mean, he, I mean, he's making like and he and he directed the the Aziz Ansari special. Oh right, right, right. You know, he's doing that, but. He, you know what we want, Spike. You know what Doing you know what the fancy commercials. Yeah. He did that very cool he did like a, a Karen O. Colbert live performance that was all mm-hmm. in one shot. That was that was really cool. Give us a narrative spike. Yeah. It uh, is it, we do need to someday we need to do the the her lost in translation podcast of like two separate versions of the breakup story between Spike oh. Jones and uh Sofia Coppola. I think that yeah. would be interesting because those are both their stories laid bare, <laughs> their versions of events. Wait, when did they break up? I mean, her is the Rooney Mara character is the. Like, I know, but when you said, to... oh, Lost in Translation isn't the breakup because that was 2002. And th- were they together at that they, point? They broke up before Lost in Translation. Oh, really? OK, I, I thought they got together after Lost in Translation, but before her. Am I wrong? Maybe I'm wrong. Oh yeah, they divorced in two thousand three. So what was Sophia? Co- Sophia Coppola had one. I forget. Was it? Was it? Um, the somewhere Dorf somewhere maybe it was somewhere. Or the know. beguiled is just a weird allegory that we all yeah. Missed. <laughs> I, but I feel like I mean even in Lost in Translation, like the husband is distant, like the Giovanni yeah. Ribisi character. Yeah. clearly a Spike Jones conduit. Yeah. He's always like, oh, I got to go off to this video shoot. Well, this. You know, this film, Kaufman's over it, and it sounds like, you know, Jones's uh, uh, work, it all kind of brings into mind the question of how much of an artist's real humanity and real personal life should they put into their work? How fair is it to them? How fair is it to the people around them? How fair is it to us to, like, kind of demand more and more blood and more suffering and more of their real yeah. stuff. And if, it feels like if, Kaufman pushes that to its absolute limits. And then, yeah, so. Kaufman is, is nothing but himself. Yeah. Uh, when his name is on it. Um, but at the same time, I feel like artists don't owe us anything. Like, I think, I do think you have to put something personal into your art just to give it that spark of life. But I also feel like we're not, you know, you, no artist owes us anything. Like we don't need I don't need to know, you know, about your childhood or anything like that. Like, it's fine to keep that kind of stuff private, you know, it's weird. It's, but again, like, you know, people contain such multitudes that like, you know, is George Lucas, like, is he part of Star Wars? Of course he is. Like he, like that's in it, but it's not like I now know about George Lucas's marriage because of Star Wars. 
You know, it's all in the Battle of Yavin 4 if you read it right. You know? <laughs> no, I know about George Lucas's marriages because of Temple of Doom. Yes. <laughs> there you go. Ooh. No time for love, George Lucas. <laughs> all right. Well, with that, do you want to move on to Recently Watched? Let's do it. All right. Uh, Greg, what have you seen lately that you want to talk about? Uh, Yeah, I was recently kind of gobsmacked it, it was on my radar for a while but i watched um the amazon low budget jgl thriller 7500 hmm. which stars joseph gordon levitt as an american pilot on a german uh plane and their plane is hijacked by terrorists and he has to kind of ward them off kind of a boiler plate ish plane thriller plot um it's the directorial debut of a German film director. I think his name is Patrick Vorpal. And one of my very favorite subgenres of movies are thrillers that take place in just one room. And this is about as just one room as you can get. It pretty literally Sh- only... Short of buried. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's, it's kind of literally only in the cockpit. And there's this really suspenseful device where... Um, he there's this like monitor that he watches of the cabin and we only see what's going on in the cabin through this monitor through JGL's eyes and it results in this like really striking minimalist aesthetic all of the filmmaking is very confident that just the kind of pure uh procedure of these actions going on will be enough to cap- to get our attention there's no music in the film it's edited in a lot of long takes. It, it, it demands a lot of patience and it earns it. And it's really interested in um, character dynamics too. I think there's certainly some problematisms in, in the year 2020 releasing a film where Muslim extremist terrorists take over and fight our white protagonist. I, th- that's a hard thing to swallow for a lot of people and I get that. But I think this film is interested in diving past kind of the superficial optics of such a thing and getting into the psychologies of these folks hijacking the plane of JGL. And it results in this very quiet kind of character moments and climax that really like kind of shook my heart. And the last shot of the film, I had to like just kind of sit on the couch and like absorb it absorb its blow for a while really it really shook me i was surprised yeah i felt the same way i was just like this was it was just very strong competent filmmaking yeah uh, kind of felt a little bit like like captain phillips but we're gonna put it all in a cockpit and like yeah. that's what you have to sit with it did i did get a little bit of captain phillips vibes but i think captain phillips i didn't love captain phillips mm. uh i think it got a little too locked into a more traditional thriller hero villain plot whereas this one felt very comfortable in like minimalist ambiguity in a way that i just really dug yeah it's a great it's a it's a good film it's a it's a nice little comeback vehicle for yeah for levitt who i think is going to probably have a an interesting year i mean he's got project power coming out on friday and then he's also in trial of the chicago seven so good to see him back He's on all the streaming services. All the, and hey, we're all stuck at home, so it all worked out. It all worked out for, for one guy. And that guy is Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, Adam, what have you seen lately? 
Uh, quick note, I did look it up. Sofia Coppola and Spike Jones split up the same year that Lost in Translation came out. So maybe she showed Spike the movie. <laughs> I was like, mm-hmm. hmm. Uh, so that's because I knew I had heard that before, that they're like kind of two sides of their their relationship story in those two films. Okay. Um, but yeah, I've been watching a lot. I uh, Perry Mason wrapped up last night and I enjoyed watching that. I enjoyed, uh, you know, it was very much like an L.A. noir versus like a lawyer show much more Chinatown than like a law and order kind of deal. Um, but more than anything, it was just like, oh, I have something to look forward to every week. Like in this age of chaos, Alison Keene wrote a really good piece over at Paste uh, about the binge watching versus like appointment viewing. And like when everything is chaos, it's nice to know like, oh, but on Sunday night, I'll be watching Perry Mason on HBO. Like that's something I can count on that's going to happen. Uh, and, you know, the show was fine. I, I, I wasn't blown away by it, but it was nice to kind of have that. And I look forward to having that with uh, Lovecraft Country coming up. Um, but the other thing I watched this weekend that I wanted to talk about was True Grit, uh, the Coen Brothers film, which I had only seen once and I was kind of OK on it. Matt, I know you're a big fan of it, um, but I was inspired after listening to the Joel Cohen interview on the Team Deacons podcast, which everyone should listen to because, number one, the Coens like never ever discuss their work or anything really um or refuse to dissect it at all um but number two because it's great because like it's roger deacons it's a buddy so they're just like kind of commiserating and remembering stuff and they were talking about how much they love the shoot of true grit um so it kind of inspired me to go back and watch that they talk a lot about uh the man who wasn't there as well um and a bit about no country but mostly just like the Cohen brothers process and how they started editing in camera. Cause they didn't really know what editing was. And I think that's why they're such good editors because they just shoot what they oh, need. Excuse me. I believe the true hero of the Cohen's editing is Roderick Jane. <laughs> Roderick Thank you. Jane. Thank you. Correct. Very correct. Very correct. Um, but true grit. I mean, I think it's really interesting. Like, uh, it's a very straightforward Western. Like the story is not, uh, it's not trying to be subversive in any way. It's not trying to put, you know, a modern twist on anything. And in that way, it's kind of one of their most straightforward genre exercises. I mean, a lot of their films are genre exercises. Like the man who wasn't there, it's kind of a riff on something like a double indemnity or, or kind of like a noir. Um, But it has their own unique Coen brothers flavor um, and this one is kind of devoid of that, uh, aside from, you know, kind of the humor that you're used to. But I do think it's a really fascinating film from a craft perspective. I think the craft is all just impeccable. The cinematography, I love Carter Burwell's score, uh, riffing on hymns um, and stuff like that. It's a little of a bit of an odd choice to have every single male character have a vocal affectation because they are all partners. Le beef. <laughs> like you get to Josh Brolin and he's got his own reservoir. So I found that that was something I didn't remember about the film. Um, but Haley Steinfeld is fantastic. Uh, Jeff Ridges is a lot of fun. And Matt Damon is really good in it as well. Um, but just, you know, watching the Roger Deacon cinematography, uh, the production value, like shooting on location, all of that stuff. I don't know. I found it really fascinating. And Joel Cohen said on that podcast, though, you know, they asked him if there's anything he hasn't done yet that he wants to do. And he said, not really. He said he's kind of they're kind of done with Westerns. He was like, I don't feel like I ever want to do another Western again, Um, which is fair. And so, you know, in that way, it's kind of nice to look at True Grid as like this is, you know, they did kind of riffs on Westerns. But this is a straightforward Western (laughs) as made by the Coen brothers. I mean, it is it is a straightforward and it's I mean, I I read the the Charles Portis book that it's based on. and in a way, like Charles Portis is the one riffing on the genre. He's the one sort of saying, taking sort of 
deconstructing sort of the hero of Rooster Cogburn and sort of saying like, this guy is kind of a mess, but he's still our hero and sort of injecting the comedy into it. And I think what's kind of fascinating about that and um, as well as No Country is that they, they hew pretty closely to the source material, mm-hmm. but it's all in sort of the craftsmanship and the performances that the Coens really leave their mark as opposed to like the plotting. Yeah, Joel Cohen said he was kind of like dancing around the fact that he had not seen the movie and then he eventually saw the original True Grit and wasn't a, he said he's not a big fan. Yeah, it's not a good film. It's, yeah. it's basically the only reason we remember it is because they were like, OK, let's just give John Wayne his Oscar. Yeah. Like that was sort of like we need to give John Wayne an Oscar. This it's it's John Wayne's scent of a woman, essentially. Yeah. Like not his best one, but. You know, well, and he said, you know, he was inspired because he read the book and he was like, well, I know how I would do the story. And I do think what's interesting is that it is entirely from the point of view of Maddie, of the young girl, mm-hmm. yes. um, which sets it apart. And and I do think um, uh, it is kind of why it, it stands out. Um, but again, just like the craft all around, I still think it's kind of like middle of the roads Coens to me. But like the Coens are some of the greatest filmmakers who have ever lived. So middle of the road Coens is is kind of the best that anyone see, else could ever do. See, for me, it's top tier Coen because I feel oh. like it has just all the right little jokes like that did not pan out. <laughs> you know, it's like, it, you know, just 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 it knows how to just have this little bits of unique uh, flavor that I don't think anyone else can do, even though like the, the thing about the Coens is like you can watch almost any of their movies. And like, the question is, it's like, maybe this is their best, <laughs> you know, like you can sort yeah. of see the best. The only exceptions are kind of the lady killers and intolerable cruelty, which I, I need to know about. everything about intolerable cruelty. Cause it sticks out like a sore thumb. It really does. It's such a weird film in their, in their uh, filmography, but yeah, I love true grit. <laughs> <laughs> I've, uh, I've unfortunately not seen true grit, but I will say that, you could convince me that the Coen brothers are kind of a Billy Wilder era parents. Yeah. Insofar yeah. as like genre hopping and dark comedies and they're journeymen, but like they're extremely accomplished. So like yeah. Yeah, nowadays we call like journeymen of like they go from genre to genre and like they do a fine job. But yeah, well, I think you're right. I, but I would also say like there are certain Coenisms that cur- yeah. keep, that keep cropping up. Like they have a thematic through line about sort of a chaotic and unjust universe that sort of permeates all their movies. And it's sort of similar to Wilder's. Yeah. Uh, Maybe Wilder's a little softer, but not always. No. And they both kind of... Double Indemnity has a very hard edge to it. Yeah. In a way that, like, I, I feel like Double Indemnity and Fargo are kind of, like, very similar sides of the same coin. And they both, in my opinion, at their best allow once we kind of muck through the worst of humanity some kind of flower to grow at their end yes that there is some sort of solace that yeah it's not there is just like with what like it's not nihilism and i think that's the thing about the coen brothers is that some people are like oh they're just nihilist and i don't think they would consider themselves that way either which to me is the way that that throwaway joke in the big lebowski is so perfect it's yes. like oh he's a nihilist oh that must be exhausting <laughs> <laughs> Or even just burn after reading where it ends. So what did we learn? Nothing? Okay. Uh, get back to me when it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> that movie is so funny. It's so good. It's so funny. <laughs> even the credits to that movie are funny. Yeah. Because they're like the born identity. It's like, yep. like it feels like a, or I guess more of like a Tony Scott riff. Right. But, yeah. That film did not get enough respect in its time. No. Even though it was like, I guess it was nominated for Best Picture, but still not enough respect in its burn time. Burn after reading got a Best Picture nod? Yes, I believe. Yeah, um, I don't think so. I, th- I thought it, 
um, from. I thought a serious. I know a serious man. Better. A serious man. I thought No Country, A Serious Man, um, Burn After Reading, and uh, True Grit. True True Grit all got Best Picture nominations. Didn't get any Oscar nominations. It didn't get any. So I'm right. It wasn't appreciated in its time. <laughs> I win. Either way. Either way. Burn After Reading. I mean, I'm kind of not. Burn After Reading is maybe the closest to out and out nihilism the Coen Brothers yeah. get. <laughs> yeah. Like kind of coded with a watch your favorite A-listers be silly sort of marketing. Yeah. I'm not surprised people. If you want to jump back into the greatness of John Malkovich, my memoirs. Yeah. <laughs> and just dicking you around. Like, yeah, that whole lead up to George Clooney, like showing what's in the basement. Like what's yes. in the, what is. Oh, my God. People who haven't seen Burn After Reading are like, what are they laughing about? Watch Burn After Reading. You'll oh, get the boy. joke. Oof, I'm not going to so spoil good. it here. Um, all right. Uh, yeah, for my um, my recently watched, I uh, I watched the document the Netflix documentary Amanda Knox because uh, I just finished this huge Christopher Nolan project and that'll that'll run on the site next week. Uh, he's a prissy weirdo that news publicist <laughs> calls me up and yells at me. Uh, but anyway, I was looking for something to kind of cleanse the palate. And I was looking for, uh, so I figured like I was kind of in the, in the mood for some true crime docs. And, uh, and so I, I came across Amanda Knox and you're probably tangentially familiar with this case, at least about this, uh, college student in Italy who, along with her boyfriend was accused of murdering her roommate and what the film is really gets to the heart of is the case was extremely thin, but it became this media sensation. And the film isn't really like, did she do it? Did she not do it? But rather, if she did it, she is the most masterful psychopath, like on the level of Hannibal Lecter, able to deceive everyone in the world constantly for seven years or... <laughs> It's the media. The media has a real problem. And I think that's what the documentary gets the heart at, too. It's not a crime story as much as it's a media story. And I think that really kind of gives it its life. And I don't want to be like the fake news, but there is something in terms of like you're watching this documentary unfold. And on the one hand, you're like, yeah, I get the, why the tabloids are obsessed with this, because the tabloids are garbage anyway. What I don't understand is why CNN gives a shit. Why does anyone give a shit about this? Like I like other than like the victims' families and the families of like Amanda Knox and and her boyfriend, why would anyone give a shit about this? Like this is like one person died. It's a sad story, but like why are we And of course what we're conflating is like, oh, Amanda Knox is pretty, but she's also like a murderess. And like it's like it it taps into all of this sort of cultural misogyny that we don't really examine, but it's just out in the open. And I thought, so I thought the documentary was, was very well done. Um, this is very It's a quick 90 minutes. Um, they, they interview Knox, they interview her boy, her ex-boyfriend now, but um, you know, they interview all the players and it's kind of fascinating to see like who recognizes the gravitas of the case and who doesn't even realize that they're the villain. It's Nick Pisa. He doesn't realize he's oh the villain. Oh my God. That, that monster. fucking guy. Oh he's my like, God. what, I'm supposed to do journalism? That's not journalism. <laughs> like, like at one point he incredulously he's like, what, I'm supposed to check? No, there's no time for that. And it's like, you're just kind of dumbfounded at how bad he is. But um, yeah, it's a good documentary. I'd, I'd recommend checking out uh, Amanda Knox. Yeah, I like that documentary a lot. Uh, and it will make you angry. <laughs> it will make you very angry, yeah. It'll make you want to punch the media in the face. 
Um, all right. Well, Greg, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Um, and your Billy Wilder article is excellent. And I hope everyone oh, thank you. checks it out. Uh, if people want to uh, follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? Sure. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Smith L. Greg. Thanks so much for having me. This was so much fun. Of course. Uh, and Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week. Stay little chico, pit bull, Mr. 305, but it said Mr. Worldwide. And I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This holiday season, it's all about the bedroom. And Casper's Black Friday sale has up to 30% off everything you need to make your bedroom your happy place. Only Casper mattresses are made with 86 supportive gel pods to align your spine and eliminate aches and pains. And Casper bed frames are made from the highest quality materials. Give the gift of a better bedroom. Save up to 30% during Casper's Black Friday sale on now at Casper.com. Terms and conditions apply. See Casper.com slash terms for more details. Else.